boat tracks. It's not really a beach, it's a sheet. If you got your Bibles with you, would you open up to the book of Jeremiah? And we're going to continue our never-ending saga through the book of Jeremiah. <coughs> we find ourselves in a new section of Jeremiah, beginning at chapter 16. Chapters 16 through 18 are often considered a unit. In this particular time, the best time frame we can come up with is about the fourth year of King Jehoiakim's reign. Uh, you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 24. And in the first part of this chapter, chapter 16, God is going to ask Jeremiah to do something in his culture, which is almost unimaginable. He says in chapter 16, verse 1, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. By God asking Jeremiah to do that, he is asking him two things. One, to totally, utterly withdraw from the daily life and to withdraw from the culture. As a Jew, they took very seriously God's command to the people to be fruitful and multiply. To be married. That was, that was one of the, the main things you would focus on, you know, in your in your, in your life, you would say, I want to be married, I want to have a big family, lots of sons, carry on the name. I mean, that would have been part of Jeremiah from the very beginning. And you remember when God called Jeremiah, he called Jeremiah as a young man. <laughs> Jeremiah, in fact, when he was initially called, he was afraid of how people would take the fact that he was a youth. But now the call comes... For Jeremiah to forsake marriage, to have no children in this place, to totally withdraw himself outside. And for Jeremiah, it's going to be a real struggle for him. But like we were talking about this morning when we were concerned with going before the Lord in prayer and, and, and honestly praying the words of the, the Lord's prayer and understanding what does it mean to to hallow his name. What does it mean to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? For Jeremiah, the question was, I want to see God glorified more than I want a wife, more than I want children, more than I want anything else. And if you ask me, when I sit down and I look at God's prophets, God called his prophets to do a lot of hard things. But to me, Jeremiah always has a special place in my heart because to me, Jeremiah's ministry was hard. Nobody ever listened. Nobody ever changed. If Jeremiah said to the people, just go, lay down your swords and just go peaceably, God is sending this captivity from Babylon for you. You are going to this no matter what you do. If you lay down your swords and go, you can go and, and live a life of peace. But the false prophets would rise up and say, oh, that's not very patriotic. Jeremiah is telling you not to fight for your country. Get out there and fight. God wants you to go. He's going to give you the victory. And so what happened? Countless people die. Because the people desired to heap up for themselves teachers 
that would tickle their itching ears. They would say what they want to hear. But Jeremiah was called different. Jeremiah was called to give the word of the Lord, whether it was a good word or a bad word, to give that word that God gave him. In chapter 16, we see that. As God says to him, no wife, no children. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning their mothers who bore them and the fathers who begot them in this land. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor will they be buried. But they shall be like the refuse on the face of the earth. They will be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses will be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from his people, says the Lord. Loving kindness and mercy. Man, what a hard place to be in a relationship with God. And when I consider this, I'm reminded of how these people began. They began with this guy way back in the book of Genesis named Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 15, the scripture declares to us that Abraham, contrary to what he saw, believed God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. And from that beginning, God said, I'm going to take you into this land. The Lord said to Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham, by the way, is everlasting. He said, the land is yours and your generations forever is yours. They're going to go to a place for 400 years and I'm going to take them into the land. But then when God came through Moses and gave the Palestinian covenant, the the covenant in regard to the land, God said this, if you will walk after my statutes, if you will obey me, if you will be my children as I am your God, and I'll leave you in the land. But if you disobey, I will take you out of the land. But every single time we see God talk about removing them from the land, you will also see a promise to bring them back. I'll take you out, but I will bring you back. And when God brings them back, he's always talking about a particular group. And we want to focus in on that group. That particular group is a remnant. You see, Paul would write in the book of Romans in chapters 9, 10, 11, that God has a plan for the nation of Israel. Still to this day, God has a work that he's going to do to them. But he also says all of Israel will be saved. And people stumble over that sometimes. And they think that being born a Jew or living in Israel gives you a guaranteed pass. And actually, some of the children of Israel thought so. I'm sure the Pharisees were pretty sure they had a direct pass. But in reality, God says, through Paul again, not all who call themselves Israel are of Israel. Not all are mine. But those who are mine, God declares through the prophets, will walk after me, will trust me, their heart will be with me, I will be their God, and they will be my people. When we look at God's promises, 
And a lot of times, I think, prematurely, people point to May 14, 1948. Don't get me wrong. May 14, 1948 is a miracle. That Israel became a nation. That's a miracle. And I think that's the fulfillment of Scripture in Ezekiel. But when God says, I will bring you back into the land, here's what he says. I will bring you from all the four corners of the world. But he says, I will bring you when you obey me with your whole heart. When you go into Israel today, they're not obeying God with their whole heart. I think that time's coming. But I think we see the culmination of that in the return of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of Zacharias. When they look upon Jesus, whom they have pierced, and they mourn as one mourns for their only son. When they recognize him as Messiah, Jesus is going to bring them from the four corners of the earth and gather them together in his kingdom. And to me, that's the ultimate fulfillment of God saying to the nation of Israel, I'm going to bring you back. But I'm going to bring you back when you're following me with your whole heart. With your whole heart. So as we look and we see... This judgment that God's bringing upon the nation. This is a nation that has rejected him. And every time I go through Jeremiah, I'm also reminded of the book of Revelation. And the fact that that judgment is coming here on the earth for what the scripture calls the earth dwellers. The earth dwellers are those who put their hope and faith and trust in the earth. That I can save myself. There is no God. I will save myself. And those are the ones... Scripture in the book of Revelation says no matter what happens, they would not repent and they would not call upon the Lord for salvation. And the judgment that befalls the earth is going to be much greater than this judgment we see befalling the nation of Israel by the hands of Babylon. As Babylon comes down from the north. In verse 6 he says, both the great and the small will die in this land. They will not be buried, neither shall men lament them, cut themselves, or make themselves bald for them. That's an interesting verse. Why? Because all three of those are Canaanite practices that had infiltrated the nation of Israel. All three of those were Canaanite practices, cutting themselves, making themselves bald. Specifically spoken of in the Torah, in the law, in the first five books, that they were not to do that. Not to make cuttings in their flesh. Not to to shave their head the way that the Canaanites did. But here we see that it has become a practice that's a part of the nation of Israel. (coughs) Verse 7, nor shall men break bread in mourning for them. To comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and to drink for thus says the lord hosts the god of israel behold i will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride so as we look at this initial section in in jeremiah chapter 16 we see god giving jeremiah a call to come out from daily life he's not going to be a part of normal traditional life as it was in Judah up until this time. God says, in essence, get away from them. My judgment's coming, and it's going to come in your lifetime. Jeremiah, you're going to see it. And we get to read Jeremiah's words as he does see it in the book of Lamentations. 
And as we look in verse 10, he goes on. And he says, and it shall be when you show this people all these words. They're going to say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? What is our iniquity? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? And you will say to them, because your fathers had forsaken me, says the Lord. And they have walked after other gods and served them and worshiped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. God says, here's what's going on. Your fathers before you, they turn their back on me, but you've done worse. You just follow the dictates of your evil heart. That's very similar to the word that God brings against uh, the 400-year span during the judges. That everyone did what was right in his own heart. And there was no king in Israel. Who was supposed to be their king at the time of the judges? It was supposed to be a theocracy. It was supposed to be God. And he would speak to them through his prophets. But the people wouldn't have God be their king. And for me, there's a, there's a similar situation that I believe is in the body of Christ. And that situation looks to Jesus Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. Now, I don't know that I go so far as to say, if Jesus isn't your Lord, you're not saved. But I definitely question a relationship with someone who says, I trust Jesus Christ for salvation, but I won't follow him. I don't want to follow his teachings. I don't want to cling to his word. I don't want to come before him in prayer. I don't want to worship. I don't understand that relationship. It's just like the relationship that the children of Israel had in the book of Judges. When there was no king, only in this case, there's no king in my heart. Or I'm the king of my heart. In which case, just like these guys, what is my heart? We're going to see in the next chapter, it's not good. Out of my heart, good things don't flow naturally. Apart from being filled with the Spirit, out of my heart, bitter fruit will come. And the Lord said, bitter and sweet water will not come from the same fountain. And he's going to talk about that, that entire concept. And as he lays out for them, (coughs) they would not accept God's rule. And they heaped up for themselves teachers that said things they liked to hear. And that's one of the things that the Lord lays out for us is going to be a mark of the end times, isn't it? That they won't abide sound doctrine anymore. They don't want to understand sound doctrine. They want to heap up for themselves teachers that scratch their itching ears. And I think we want to be on our guard. I think we want to be in a place where we're we're seeking the Lord that that our desire is that God would be our Lord and Savior, the King of my life. We sang this this morning a song that says, You are my King. What greater hypocrisy than to sit in the place of God and sing a song that you are my King if God's not your King? You might as well be singing, I am the King. 
But that's the way their heart was. They made their own plans. They trusted in their own strength. And so God says, you have done worse. (coughs) For you have followed the evil dictates of your own heart. In verse 13, therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. It's interesting that any time the Lord speaking to the nation collectively, he always has a remnant. Who was the remnant that God had that he showed favor in the land of Babylon? Daniel. To name one, and three others, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the, who were they? Hebrew Jews. What happened to them? They were taken initially in the first conquest. There's three conquests because the children of Israel wouldn't just lay down their arms. They're taken in the first conquest. And God works through their lives, doesn't he? But what do we know? When the children of Israel are in Babylon, were they forced to worship idols? Yeah, absolutely. Nebuchadnezzar built a, a statue of gold, didn't he? It doesn't say in the scriptures that Nebuchadnezzar was mad because all the children of Israel didn't bow. It said Nebuchadnezzar was mad because those three youths didn't bow. God sent them to a place where idolatry is founded. In fact, there's a really interesting book, if you like to read, by Reverend Hislop called A Tale of Two Babylons. I think it's A Tale of Two Babylons. Or the two Babylons, it might be. I have to look in my library. But <clears throat> it brings the foundation of false religion from Babylon. Beginning at the Tower of Babel, coming through Babylon and entering into our world and all the different religions around the world as it is today. And Reverend Hislop, he draws all the parallels between them so that you can see the 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 reality that it comes from babylon which is interesting by the way when we study the book of revelation because we discover that the bible is a tale of two cities right jerusalem the city of peace and babylon and so as we look we'll recognize that even even more as we go forward now in verse 14 he says therefore behold the days are coming says the lord And it shall be no more said that the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now this, I believe, is a prophecy looking forward to Ezra and Nehemiah. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he has driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. So as we look at this prophecy, I think specifically... It's looking, or near fulfillment, is looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. Now remember, as they enter in, we have the northern and the southern kingdoms at the division of kingdoms after Solomon. Jeroboam with the north, Rehoboam with the south. Jeroboam went with Israel, Rehoboam with Judah. They have, they have terrible kings in the north. They last 250 years and they go into captivity with the Assyrians. As they go into captivity with the Assyrians, Judah, her sister, doesn't learn anything from it. Ten tribes are in captivity. Two tribes down in Judah. And as they're there in Judah, they last 150 years longer. 
for a total of roughly 400 years. It's amazing how often that number is going to come up. And so they go into captivity into Babylon. But prior to Babylon conquering Judah, who did they conquer? Assyria. And who was in Assyria? The ten northern tribes. So they've been conquered. Now Babylon conquers Judah. And we have, once again, a remnant of the twelve tribes together under one flag. They're there for 70 years of captivity. And they're brought out of that captivity under the leadership of two men. Ezra and Nehemiah. And here, the Lord says in this prophecy, no longer are you going to be known as a people who God brought out of Egypt, but they're going to become known as the people whom the Lord led out of the north. Out of the north speaks of coming out of Babylon, coming out of the place where they were in captivity and entering back into the land again. And then he looks even further and says what? Then I will gather them from the four corners of the earth, from wherever they've been spread. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their father. Behold, I will send for many fishermen. Now he's looking again at Babylon. I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they will fish them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. He's saying now, these, they may think they're going to escape this judgment. He's looking back at Babylon. But I'm going to send fishermen and they're going to fish them out. I'm going to send hunters. They're going to hunt them out. They're going to capture them all. They're going to bring them all into captivity. Captivity is a guarantee that they will enter into this time of captivity. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first... I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable, abominable idols. Now that word for double doesn't actually mean double. It's the word uh, mishneh. It means ample or full, complete. Complete. So he's going to bring complete judgment, total judgment for their iniquity. And then in verse 19, he says, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. (coughs) Now he turns and looks messianically to the fulfillment of Jesus' kingdom as the Gentiles are going to come to salvation. Will a man make gods for himself, which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord, Yahweh, YHVH, the covenantal name of God. Speaking of the Gentiles coming to know who God is. That God is going to make them to know. In chapter 17, he goes on. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. And on the horns of your altars. He's saying it is permanent. The judgment against the hearts of men cannot be erased. 
nor can it be cured. Nowhere in Scripture does God speak of curing your heart. He speaks of replacing your heart, removing the heart of stone, and giving you a heart of flesh. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees and on the high hills, O oh, my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth and all your treasures and your high places of sin within all your borders. Again, the high places are synonymous always with false worship, with idol worship. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord. Cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. <coughs> Cursed is the man who puts his trust in man, who makes flesh his strength and whose heart departs from the Lord. For he will be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. So the man who puts his trust in man, we don't see very, very much fruitfulness coming from him. A parched, salty, empty wilderness. The land, the desert is going to be his habitation. But then it's compared in verse 7, Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Now he talks about the man who trusts in the Lord. He's going to be blessed. He's going to be happy. But what you need to see is it's not going to be easy. He doesn't say you're going to be by the river and times are going to be gravy. You're going to have water plenty all the time. He doesn't say that. He says, in fact, when heat comes, you will not fear when heat comes. That heat that he's talking about <clears throat> that brings that idea of drought, the, the, the withering of that water, the supply going away. Yet this tree will not fear. Why? Because he is a man who is trusting in the Lord. And the Lord is going to do what he needs to do. He will be glorified in your life. And the man who trusts in the Lord is a man who says, I want to see God glorified more than I want to see the water that my roots were a part of. So I'll stay here in this dry ground and continue to yield fruit. And people will look and say, how is it that this tree is so fruitful in this land of drought or in this desert? And they will know it's the Lord. He also says, it will not be anxious in the year of drought. It's not going to be worried. It's not going to be stressed. It's not going to be afraid. Because its trust is in the Lord. That doesn't mean... We don't have moments of fear. But we have two choices here. 
right? Put your trust in yourself. And what picture did God paint? Uh, living in the desert with nothing and salt. That doesn't sound like a good place to me. Or trust in the Lord and be like that tree planted by the river, planted by the water, strong, deep root system, and fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. It's been a little bit challenging. Anybody else been challenged like the last five or six days? I don't know. <clears throat> a lot of stuff going on. A lot of things happening. We, we go to the hospital and visit one person, and it seems like the doctors are being boneheads. And you talk to somebody else, and it seems like the same struggle. And, 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 and you look at the circumstances and the things that are happening and the struggles that they're facing as a result, and it's real easy to start to point to the hands of men and say, what a bunch of knuckleheads, they messed this whole thing up. But if we do that, we're, I think, putting our trust in men. God is sovereign. God is in control. I don't understand it all. I don't know why it has to be the way it is. I don't know why things have to happen the, the way they do. But I know I'm going to trust the Lord. And I want to see His hand move. And I want to see Him be glorified through it. And I don't want to waste energy being angry or frustrated at a person when in reality, I don't know that person or whatever situation I'm frustrated about. God led me to that. God brought me here. And I want to be that tree. I want to say, I'm not going to be afraid, even though it's hot. The fire is raging. I'm not going to be afraid, even though the provision has dried up. <coughs> and I don't know how I'm going to pay for it or how I'm going to do what I'm going to do or, or whatever the case is. I'm going to look to the Lord. Because there are times where God works in our life to grow us. And there are times when God works in our life to grow somebody else through our example. Both are true. So I want to trust in the Lord. I want to trust in the Lord. Now, does that mean I always do it? No, I get caught up just like everybody else. I think, wow, you know, why did that have to go that way? Or why did this person make that choice? Or why did that guy do this or the other thing? But don't you find yourself when you do that getting in this exhausting cycle of, of complaint and worry and fret? And I don't, none of that's from God. None of that's from God. That's what happens when I start looking at the storm raging around me and forgetting. I, I see the fog, but I'm not seeing the God. I'm seeing the giant, but I'm not seeing God behind him. I want to see God. I want to see God. I want to encourage people. See God. See God in it. Say, you know, I don't know why. I don't know, I don't know why it had to be or why this has to happen, but I trust God. And I, the Bible, the Word of God tells me if I trust God, then I'm going to be fruitful. And, and then I'm going to experience God moving in my life. And if I trust men and I worry about that, then I'm just going to be frustrated. 
I'm going to be cursed or I can be blessed. The Lord would say it this way. I put before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life. Choose to experience that which the Lord has for us. And then in verse 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things. All things means all things. So it always makes me nervous when someone says, I'm following my heart. (laughs) Uh, The word says, the heart is messed up. So I try to encourage people, lead your heart. Lead your heart. Lead it by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. The scripture says the heart is deceitful (coughs) and desperately wicked. And that word desperately wicked means beyond cure. Incurably damaged. Ruined. Who can know it? But the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And while the heart is is deceitfully wicked, or desperately wicked, beyond cure, God says, I know it. What did David pray in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart. This idiom that David uses, the concept behind creating me a clean heart, is to make me a new one. Make me a new heart. Make my heart right before you. Throughout scripture we see the heart as a source of all human frailty. In the Proverbs it speaks of it. From the heart comes all our deeds. And from the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus would say, the mouth speaks. I need a clean heart. I need heart surgery, and and God wants to do that. And in verse 11, he says, As a partridge it broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at the end, he will be a fool. When I read that, I I always write next to it. (coughs) When I saw... How did he... How did... I think it's Asaph that wrote it. When I saw... The prosperity of the wicked, I almost lost heart. Until I went into the sanctuary and I saw his end. And I think that's what the Lord is laying out for us here. There's a judgment time for the wicked. And it doesn't matter how it looks like they're prospering. God knows. What did he just tell us? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, but God knows it, right? And I will give to every man what he deserves. I don't want to be in that line. I do not want what I deserve. And so he says, just like the partridge that broods but doesn't hatch, so is the rich man. He may look like he's getting away with it, but God says, I know his heart. I know what's going on. Verse 12, he says, a glorious and high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel... All who forsake you shall be ashamed. And those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. 
that phrase. I want you to remember that when we come to Revelation and begin to study about the earth dwellers. Their names written in the earth compared to the names of the saved being written where? In the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life or do you want your name written on the earth? This is all there is. This is all my hope. This is all I desire. In verse 14, now we see the, 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 the other prophets cry out, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Well, indeed, they say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Here the Lord says <coughs> to the false prophet that they may cry out, Oh Lord, where's the word? And what happened? And we didn't know all this. And the Lord says, Hey, I'm not the one who ran away from you. I stayed here and I gave that word to you. That word, it passed by my lips. If you've been with us since the beginning of Jeremiah, you've seen Jeremiah go through it for the people over and over and over again. What do people do? Not listen, not listen, not listen. Jeremiah wasn't the only one. Isaiah before him, Ezekiel. Reaching out to the people, reaching out consistently that that they might turn, that they might repent. So the Lord says, hey, it was right there before you. In verse 17, do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed who persecute me. Now Jeremiah calls out to the Lord, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Again, that phrase, double destruction, is the idea of complete or total destruction. Jeremiah was hated by everybody, wherever he went. And he wants the Lord to be his shield. So, verse 19, the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourself, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey, nor incline their ear, but made their necks stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. God sends him then to the gates, and he says to remind them about the Sabbath. Now there's two important things about the Sabbath. The Sabbath shows two things. One that God is the creator, that he created all the universe and he rested on the seventh day. The second thing is a specific covenant with the nation of Israel. Specific covenant with them. And he's reminding them of this specific covenant. Now, when you look at this, keep in mind, we have a period of time for which the nation of Israel (coughs) existed And didn't honor the Sabbath. For 490 years. 
70 times 7, interestingly enough. The nation of Israel did not keep the Sabbath. And it's pretty similar to what people do today. When they look at the Sabbath, what do they want to pick? Uh, We've got to take a day out of the week and make it holy. Was that the Sabbath law? They're forgetting some things, aren't they? The Sabbath law also included the Sabbath year. Six years you will work the land, and the seventh year you leave it fallow. On the sixth year, I'll give you double. On the seventh year, don't plant. Give the land a Sabbath. But the nation of Israel never did it for 490 years. Every seven years, or the seventh year, there was supposed to be a Sabbath year. How many Sabbath years did they miss? Seventy. How long was their captivity in Babylon? 490 years is what led to it. Seventy years in Babylon. Seventy years, one year for each, but they did not honor the Sabbath. What was that Sabbath? That was God's specific uh, ordinance with the nation of Israel. It was with them. The Lord says, this is my covenant with you, with Israel. Show that, that, that that you trust me. Don't do any work. Set apart this day. <coughs> Set apart that year. But they would not. And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallowed the Sabbath to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of the city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding on chariots and on horses, They and their princes accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall remain forever. So even here, by the prophet Jeremiah, God says, if you'll do this. But the scripture already told us they would not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the low land, from the mountains, and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. The Lord honored the words that he gave to the children of Israel. They would not obey. They would not let him be king. It doesn't say that they were struggling with it. They just would not incline their ear and made their neck stiff. Don't care. I'm going to do what's right in my heart. And it led them to the path of destruction And the question about it is going to lead Jeremiah next week to the potter's house. Which is one of my favorite chapters in Jeremiah. So we'll have a good time when we get to that. Tonight we're going to go ahead and close as we do on Sunday night. Just with a time of prayer. So we're going to do just a time of open prayer. As the Lord moves, we want to invite you to pray. We want to invite you to seek his face. If God gives you a word, share the word. If the Lord lays on your your heart a tongue, share the tongue. If you have the gift of interpretation, 
Bring the interpretation. If God shows you a vision, share the vision. Perhaps someone here will have the gift of interpretation and can share with us uh, the understanding or the meaning of that vision. But I, I want to encourage us. We have opportunity to just sit at the feet of the Lord. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying we've got to conjure anything up. I'm just saying if the Spirit of the Lord moves, let Him move. The Spirit of the Lord speaks, let Him speak. And as we just set aside this time, we'll just seek God's face until we stop. And uh, I invite you guys to go on the journey with me and see what the Lord will do. If the Lord will meet us in this place. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you. God, we ask, Lord Jesus, in this time, Father, that you would move (coughs) in us and among us, Lord. God, that you would search our hearts and know us. And as David prayed, if there's any wicked way in me, lead me in the path everlasting. Lead me in that path where I can say, as David did, create in me a clean heart. Create. Make it new. God, we need that new heart. Lord, we need a heart tuned in to you we need a heart where you reign as king lord that you are our lord that we cling to your word and to your precepts and to your commandments and we say these are important to me this is who i am god i pray lord that as your people learn to come before you in humility And learn to pray. Seek your face. To turn from our wicked ways. That you would do a work, a revival, like we haven't seen in a hundred years. That you would pour out your spirit on all men. The old man would dream dreams and the young man would prophesy. Lord, that you would do a work that glorifies you in us and through us.